Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future Interview podcast, where we talk with leaders in tech, science, and business about the future of technology and the global economy. I'm here today with Joe Piscatella, who is a director, writer, and producer. And I am your host, Barrett Anderson, the COO of Future in Review, which The Economist has called the best technology conference in the world. Joe is joining us at Future in Review this November 6th through 9th in L.A., and we're so excited to have him there. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great. It's great to talk to you again. So I'm, I would love to start off if you, just with a, for those who are not familiar with Future Interview, the conference, one of the things that we really emphasized is documentary film. So we are a tech conference, but we are specifically are a conference that focuses on technological solutions to global challenges and technological challenges and their impacts on society. Your films are a really important, have been and continue to be a really important contribution to the documentary canon in this space. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about some of your earlier films and how you got into filmmaking specifically. Of course. So I'll give you the the really brief backstory. I started my career working in family comedy. I wrote Underdog for Disney. I did the comedy punch-ups on Kung Fu Panda and Hotel Transylvania. And in 2011, I had the opportunity to go direct a tiny documentary. I had never directed anything before, had never made a documentary, but it was about this 19-year-old girl in Chicago that was helping run the Syrian revolution. And at the time, this was Arab Spring. We all thought Facebook was going to bring democracy to the world. And we made this film called Hashtag Chicago Girl that did really well. It really resonated with young people. And suddenly my brand became not talking dog movies anymore, but my brand became (laughs) unlikely heroes that take on enormous power structures. And yeah, so from that move, from that film, we went to our, my team and I went to this next, next film called Joshua Teenager versus Superpower. That was about Joshua Wong, who was the 13 year old who lit the fuse on all of the turmoil in Hong Kong over the past decade. And again unlikely hero taking on an enormous, enormous power structure uh, that we all know is China. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, you were in Hong Kong as these uprisings were happening. Can you tell us what that was like? It, It was amazing to see it from the perspective of this group of teenagers who, you know, they just so passionately believed in democracy. They passionately believed in what Hong Kong had been promised. Most of them were born right around the time of the handover. Mm-hmm. And they all had grown up with this promise of freedom and democracy and freedom right. of speech and freedom of assembly and all the things that we take for granted here in the United States. And at the time they were taking them for granted too. They just thought they were always going to be there but it was time to fight for them because they only had 50 years to solve this problem. And so it was fascinating. So let's back up for one second. For those who aren't familiar with Hong Kong's history, can you describe this 50 year chat, like the, just the basics of what happened, China, what was China's role? What was Hong Kong's role? And what was the promise that you're referencing here? Of course. So for 150 years, Hong Kong had been under British rule and under British rule, they had a fairly high degree of freedom and autonomy. And then in 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China, which had always been the, what the agreement was going to be after 150 years. And 
of course, Hong Kongers were very nervous about this because again, under British rule, they had a semblance of freedom. Tiananmen Square had just happened a decade earlier. There were some real fears of, hey, communist China is going to be taking over our country. And so an agreement was put in place where Hong Kongers were going to maintain uh, all of the, the freedoms that they had enjoyed up until this point for 50 more years till the year 2047. And that was freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. And they were also promised that at some point down the road, they would be able to elect their own leader in Hong Kong uh, mm -hmm. through a democratic election. Okay. And that, that promise just kept getting kicked down the road every year. It was always coming, but it was always going to come in the next election and then the election after that. And it never quite came. And this made Hong Kongers quite angry because you want the leader of your country to be chosen by your people, not hand selected by China, who will just do their bidding and not have the best interests of Hong Kongers at heart. And so what was the experience of Hong Kongers that you were witnessing during this time? What was it that, that led to this uprising? Uh, putting the focus on Joshua mm -hmm. Wong, this is now we're talking 2011, 2012. He's a 13 year old going on 14. And Joshua Wong, is, China decided that they were going to implement Communist Party education in Hong Kong. Okay. And all the adults were, it's China. What are you going to do? And Joshua Wong at age 13 read the entire 200 page document and said, oh my God, this is a really slippery slope. I don't think we want to agree to this. So this and was like a total overhaul of the public education system? It was, yes. And okay. Joshua used his allowance, bought a bullhorn, went into the streets with some friends and started a movement. And he just, he started to get other students involved and Joshua really tied it into, hey, if we lose freedom of education and what we're being taught, it's a mm -hmm. very slippery slope of where this goes. Joshua got, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I think he had almost 100,000 kids shut down Communist Party headquarters in Hong Kong for eight days and actually got the government to repeal the education uh, proposal. Uh, our country, the United States, can't get the Communist Party of China to step backwards on policy. Here you have a 13-year-old. He was now 15 at the time when this finally happened. Uh, enacted change. And the government thought Joshua and his friends, they're teenagers. They're going right. to go back to being teenagers. They may have won this round, but that's the end. And instead they doubled down and they said, Hey, you promised us democracy. We want it now. So how did you, Joe Piscatella, sitting over here in LA, find out about or learn about this story and what brought, what drew you to it? I, so my team and I had wanted to do something about uh, China and, and what we were seeing is an impending threat of China, particularly with democracy. And I find that these stories only work if you have a really great character. I can tell you I'm making a film about Syria or the Syrian revolution mm -hmm. and you're going to roll your eyes and say, okay, that doesn't interest Yeah, I heard a million I, of those. Exactly. If I tell you I'm making a film about a that's not, that's not my, that's not my opinion. I'm just saying it. Yeah. But it is. We used to call it the, the, the Syrian eye roll. We would tell people we were making a film about the Syrian revolution and you could just see their eyes roll back in their head. It, we, we had fatigue from the topic of the Middle East as a country. We had been there for a long time. But if I tell you I'm making a film about a 19 year old American girl who's helping run the Syrian revolution, 
suddenly you're like, that's interesting. I'm going to pay attention. And we felt the mm -hmm. same way about the issue with China. So one of my producers happened to be in Hong Kong. He's British, but happened to be living in Hong Kong at the time and happened to see Joshua Wong the first day he brought his bullhorn out. And there was something okay. really remarkable. Joshua Wong is very dynamic. He's this very slight kid, big glasses. When you look at him, there's nothing about him that screams leader. And then the moment he gets the microphone or the bullhorn, you're just like, oh my God, what that kid is amazing. And right. my producer had the wherewithal to start filming him. And so he filmed him for about a year before I came on board. And so when this project came to me, there was some amazing archival footage already. And Hong Kong was heating up. The Umbrella Revolution was about to start. And that was Hong Kong's big push for democracy. Again, the next movement that was being led by Joshua Wong and Nathan Law and all of these teenagers who have now become such big figures in the democracy movement. And we decided that, hey, there's really a compelling story here, not just about the democracy angle, but about, and what does it take to actually affect change? And I always tell people, one of the reasons I'm so attracted to teenagers who start these movements is to change the world. You actually have to believe you can change the world. And right. when you get to be my age, it's easy to become jaded. It's easy to see, man, affecting change is really hard. Yeah. But when you've got 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds, yes, there's an, maybe you can call it naivete, you can call it idealism, but they believe they could change the world and watching these kids. I mean, they, at one point they had a million people in the streets. That's remarkable for kids who, you know, these are high school kids. So walk us through what happened, you know, the umbrella movement was several years ago. What's been going on since then? So the umbrella movement was a success until it wasn't, meaning the kids managed to shut down Hong Kong for 79 days and they ultimately lost. The movement lost steam. There was some infighting. The government basically waited them out. And where some people look at it and say, hey, this was a failure, other people like me look at it and say, okay, it was a failure in the immediate sense, but it ignited an entire generation who looked at the umbrella movement and said, oh, wait a second, if enough of us turn out, if enough of us believe, maybe we can affect change. So right. for post-umbrella revolution, the, the, the movement was quiet and dormant. And then in, oh goodness, I'm getting, in like 2017, 2018, it started to heat up again. And basically the government introduced a bill in Hong Kong that would allow Hong Kongers to be extradited to China. Before this that, was, Hong, was that the national security bill or is that a different one? That's a different bill. Okay, okay. Uh, this is what they call the extradition bill. Okay. And, and this put a real fear into Hong Kongers because Hong Kong has its own judicial system. It's more akin to the US judicial system. And China was now saying, hey, that's great. You can have your own judicial system. But, but we're gonna choose when you get to be a part of that system. And at any point, we can just take you back to China yeah, we under can just our yank, judicial system. We can just yank you out and yes. put you where we want you. Yes. And so suddenly, people who were on the fence before were like, well, wait a second, that could be me. That could be my kid. That could be my husband. And it could be for seemingly anything. And so it started this round of protests where they, on in early June, what are we talking, 2019? 
They got a million people into the streets. A week later, they had two million people in the streets. Hmm. Two million people in the streets. That's two out of every seven people in Hong Kong took to the streets. That's remarkable. And anyways, it's the movement really heated up. And then suddenly it, the younger generation, the generation below Joshua Wong, the high school students said, Hey, this is lovely. You guys have all been peaceful protesters and nonviolent protesters. I don't think it's getting us anywhere. And suddenly mm. the next generation had a decision to make of, Hey, do we continue with peace and love and hope and sit-ins or do we take matters into our own hands? And suddenly the movement had a, had a more radical faction to it that were suddenly throwing Molotov cocktails and setting things on fire and really going for broke. And shortly thereafter, the government enacted what they call their national security law. And this was the game changer for everything. The national security law is written in a very vague way that anybody, anything can be a crime. You and I literally sitting here and discussing the national security law is, is considered a crime. Yeah. And it's, it's basically a blank check for those who aren't familiar with it. It's basically a blank check for authoritarianism, right? It's like anything that you say or do can be arbitrarily decided upon to be in violation of the national security law, which means that you can't criticize the government. You can't any movement or business dealing that may be considered critical or detrimental to the government in any way can be considered in violation of this law. And it, and when you combine that with the extradition law, it's like extremely, imagine overnight if you suddenly had to be worried about an, over, an authoritarian definition of your activities being misinterpreted and then you can just be yanked out into China. That would be terrifying. And it effectively shut down all the freedoms that Hong Kongers have been promised. Suddenly there was no longer freedom of speech. There are people that are now on trial for national security charges just for chanting the slogan of the revolution, which was revolution of our time. Posting something on Facebook that was critical of the government. Suddenly you could be up on national security charges. And they're under these, under this law, they aren't just going after the Joshua Wongs of the world who were really leaders in the democracy movement. They're going after kids who maybe went to a protest or two, kids who maybe posted some things on Facebook when they were 14 or 15. They're looking to shut down dissent in any way, shape, or form. And they've been very successful at it because this has been a game changer in Hong Kong. Now everybody is deathly afraid of not just continuing the movement, but speaking about it in any sort of terms can land you in jail. So, Joe, I think this is really important because in the United States, I have experienced this firsthand. A lot of people, I don't think, really understand what it would mean to be in that kind of position. It's part of why I feel like your films are so essential for um, Americans in general to understand this. But imagine if, I want to put this in a context of the U.S., right? So we take so much for granted about, the, the United States has definitely has its challenges and problems. It's really screwed up a lot of things around the world. It's done some really terrible things around the world. This is not a, this is not a defense of those things. But we do have this very basic right, which is that if we want to say something that 
criticizes the government or that criticizes someone else, we can post it online, we can chant it in the streets, we can write about it in our local media publications or on our post it on our blogs or on our Facebook pages. And unless it's blatantly threatening violence towards someone else or and that's allowed. We're not we don't have to worry about being thrown in jail for doing that. And so what I want to like highlight for this, because I think there is especially in the technology world that I live in, a lot of kind of turning a blind eye to those behaviors. It would be the equivalent of any time anyone who posted Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Don't Matter on their Facebook page during the Black Lives Matter movement thrown in jail, right? That's I, th I think this is what I want people to understand and what I want viewers of our podcast to understand because we talk a lot about things like TikTok, right, which is owned essentially by the Chinese government, by ByteDance, which is controlled by the Chinese government. And that kind of level of control and malice and influence and surveillance is something that most young people in America don't think about because they don't have to think about it. That's exactly right. I can illustrate it in a little, in a different way. So when I, the first time I filmed Joshua Wong was 2015, I think. I might've been earlier than that, but point is, he had already been on the cover of Time Magazine. He was already a well-known figure of the democracy movement. He was mm -hmm. already leading movements. And my team and I were in Hong Kong and we were able to openly film him. We might get a little police harassment of, okay, you have proper permits to be filming on the street. But, but we could openly associate with him. We could film him on the streets. Zero interference. Four years later, we did a follow-up interview with him in Hong Kong. And to film that interview, it, we had to have a secret location. We had to be sure that his cell phone and laptop did not come to the location site. And we had a crew that was entirely anonymous because they did not want to be known. Not, even to me, because they were afraid that the government could come after them. And Joshua Wong is somebody who advocates he, peaceful protest, nonviolent protest. He's somebody that advocates civil disobedience. All the buzzwords we heard in, in, in our civics classes growing up or our government classes growing up that, again, I think we take for granted. And w the most interesting thing that I have seen is just a in the course since I've made the Joshua Wong film and now how quickly that all went away in Hong Kong. It went away in a matter of a couple of years and not just eroded slowly, like overnight it went away. Right. And I think that's so hard for us as Americans to grasp because we just think what we have is guaranteed and will always be here. And it, it, the big takeaway I always have when I do screenings and I get these Q and A's of, Hey, what's the takeaway that, that you want audiences to have? And it's that democracy is a group project. It's fragile. It can go away if we don't pay attention to it. If you don't nurture it, if you don't get involved with it, if you just ignore it or ignore all the things that are attacking it, you end up like Hong Kong where suddenly everything went away. Yeah. Are there. When you think about the documentary world, 
there's this interesting thing that we're experiencing globally right now where there are a couple of different <laughs> allied authoritarian nations that are trying very hard to expand their reach, including China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. North Korea, maybe not so much trying to expand, but and we're, we've got Viktor Orban in Hungary. We've got a lot of really interesting political machinations happening across Africa and South America. When you look at all of that, I'm sure you're tracking these all of these movements. What are you what is what do you notice? What are you what is your general opinion of what's going on? It it makes me nervous and I'll tell you why it makes me nervous. It's in my early film, like when I made Josh, the Joshua Wong film, it woke a lot of people up to, oh, I didn't know that's what was going on in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know that, that there was this issue. I didn't realize what China was doing in that regards. What I'm finding now is we know it's just most yeah. people don't care. There, there's, yeah. It's just, it's become normalized. It's hard to get people engaged because there's a sense of it's those people over there fighting about something that doesn't affect me. So why should I care? I'm just going to watch the latest TikTok dance or watch the latest true crime on Netflix. And listen, I have no issue with, with popcorn films or, or films that are just meant to purely entertain. But if, again, if we ignore the bigger issues, those issues will ultimately come for us. When you look at what's going on in the world right now, are there specific, whether countries or movements that you find most inspiring? I think the watching what's going on in the Ukraine and just the way that the Ukrainians have stood up and banded together and fought back, I think is inspiring. I'm inspired by people that, that fight for freedom. And, and the hard part in some of the films I've made is they don't have happy endings. They can have a hopeful ending, mm -hmm. but whether you're talking about the Assad regime in Syria or China, or I, I made a film in Vietnam right. called My Koi in the Distance. And when you're talking about the, the Communist Party of Vietnam, they're going to remain in power. One person, of course, is not going to change the movement. A teenager is not going to topple an authoritarian government. And so the hardest part for me in making these films is watching what happens to them after, because right. when I made these films, there was, when we made hashtag Chicago girl, there was a real sense that the Assad regime might fall now, not because of a teenager in Chicago, but there was an entire social network on the ground of, of young people in Syria that were fighting for this. And we really felt oh, wow, the Assad regime is going to fall. The next democracy is going to come in. And of course, it didn't happen. And after that film ended, my cameraman was killed. He was targeted by the Assad regime for teaching citizens how to document human rights atrocities so there'd be a record of them when the regime did fall. One of our other characters who was on the ground in Syria, who we had, over the course of the film, watched him be a, go from being a dental student to being a pro uh, nonviolent protest leader using Facebook to coordinate, to ultimately picking up an AK-47 and joining the Free Syrian Army because 
he felt that was the only possible way to achieve the goal. He since had to flee flee his homeland. Um, it, it, the, my Joshua Wong film, Joshua Teenagers versus Superpowers. Joshua Wong is currently in jail. Agnes Chow is up on charges, national security law charges. Nathan Law is in exile in London. It's a hard road and you look at, man, I am so inspired by these kids and my audiences seem to be inspired by them. It's hard for me three, four, five, 10 years after making these films, realizing, hey, the reality is if you fight these fights. You become a target. You, you become, become a deep target. Yeah. It is. And you've got these kids who are mortgaging their futures when they're not quite old enough to understand that they're mortgaging their futures. And again, I have so much respect and, and admiration for what they have done and what they are doing, but it's hard to watch them as they get into their twenties and late twenties and realize they've got a really hard road ahead of them, whether it's facing jail time or being in exile. How do you take care of yourself in that context? That's a lot of weight to carry. My team and I, we have a lot of discussions. It's a lot of, as filmmakers, we're trying to be observers. Obviously we don't influence the story, but sometimes I see them making decisions where you're thinking to yourself or our team will internally have a meeting of, should we say something? Do they understand that the decision, this I'll illustrate it this way. There's a kid in one of my films who had a dual citizenship between Hong Kong and the UK. And at one point they gave up their passport, their UK passport. Now this was before the national security law. They were yeah. trying to, they were trying to run for office in Hong Kong to run for office in Hong Kong. You have to give up your passport. Um, and when they were doing this, my, our producers and I were like, do you, do you really want yeah. you know, there's already a 50, 50 chance you're going to get disqualified from this election. Yeah. Just, just because of who you are, this is your exit ticket. And they were 21 or 22 and they believed in the cause. And there was maybe a certain romanticism to it. And I just remember my producers, I'd be like, oh, we're closer to your parents' age than we are to your age right now. Yeah. And I don't think this is a good idea. And that those are the hard things where it's like, oh, I am watching you make a decision in real time that I can see how this plays out 10 years from now and you can't. Do you plan to continue making these kind of films? I do, but they're getting harder. They're, they're getting harder because there used to be a very robust marketplace for them. You, we could make these films independently. Netflix might license them. The foreign sales were always great because there's a real appetite for human rights stories, particularly in certain parts of Europe. And over the last few years, as the world has become consumed with all these other, what seemingly bigger problems in here in this country, obviously we have our own sets of issues that we're more consumed with. It's harder to get them financed. It's harder to get them sold. Right now, people want true crime, celebrity, and music docs. And there's nothing wrong with all of those. Those are great. It's just so genres. depressing when you say it in that context. You're like, we can't sell the films about how important it is to protect democracy because people want to watch celebrities. It, it is. And again, where, where I've become a little disenchanted is 
I feel like with my, when I first started making these films, it was a lot of people and even educated people say, oh, wow, I vaguely knew something was going on over there. I didn't know that's what it was or to what extent or how bad it had gotten. I'm going to start paying attention. And I yeah. feel like we've hit a point now where it's people saying to me, oh, I'm fully aware of what's going yeah, on over there. I think it's like emotional fatigue, right? It is, it, it I think is. it's this feeling that a lot of people have where they can't hand what do you do what how do you react when you know that you don't know that there's an impact that you can have and you're hearing all the time all of these stories i, I think it's, so it's well, just I mean, very I, no you go ahead you, well i think social media has has kept us in a state of outrage on things to where we're, we're already outraged every day on little things so when these big issues come up, it's hard to it's hard to muster more outrage because yeah. we're already angry. And again, we are we're I find particularly when I'm talking about the issue of China, I, I hear now from so many people, oh, I know it's an issue, but what do you want me to do about it? I can't right. do anything about it. And I think there's a feeling of helplessness of, oh, I can't help the people of the Ukraine. I can't help the people of Hong Kong. I can't help people in Syria. I'll just go back to my true crime documentary because I feel helpless. If you had, so let's talk about that. I think one of the things that I've studied information warfare quite a bit, by the way, and one of the things that I deeply believe based on the research and the work that I've done is that this feeling of helplessness is manufactured in part deliberately through Chinese and Russian misinformation <laughs> efforts. And especially that we know that's true through about the outrage, right? We know that all of that, like many of their misinformation efforts are designed to drum up political polarity in the United States. And I think it's important. Let's I would like to end on a note that gives folks something to hold on to, because it is really important. And there are a lot of things that you can do as an individual. Number one that I always tell people is don't become a cog in the outrage machine, right? Don't get mad about things that don't mash. <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. Do some breathing exercises, some box breaths. Maybe if you feel like you're getting all bent out of shape about something that someone that you know online is saying, just don't. Don't waste your time and energy on that. But on the other hand, there are things that we should be getting upset about and we should be getting frustrated about that impact a huge number of people globally. If I wanted to support the movement in Hong Kong or the pro-democracy movement, what could I do to support Nathan Law, Joshua Wong now, Agnes Chow? First and foremost, continue the conversation, have the conversations, have the difficult conversations, educate people. That doesn't mean you've got to stand on a soapbox on the street corner. But when you see that article that's written about it, engage with it, share it with somebody, keep the conversation going. Second, look at who, take the time to research who you support, who are, the, who are our own candidates here in the United States that supports these causes. Figure out how to support them. Vote with your wallet. That's always a really big one. Figure out how is your money being effectively spent? Don't spend your money on, I realize TikTok's a free app, but don't spend all your time and attention on things like 
TikTok, figure out what are the things that are important to you and live accordingly. And I, I realize that's a vague notion, but there isn't a single, it isn't like you can say, well, if you write a check to this organization, everything will be better. It's more complicated than that. And it, it comes down to support the people that are supporting these causes, whether it's with your votes, with your dollars, with just where you spend your attention. Yeah. And also, yeah, the, the attention, I think, is a big one. Because so much of when you, I talk a lot about TikTok and how everyone should delete it from their phones and it should be banned and all. There's a wide range of apps that should probably be banned in the United States. China doesn't let any U.S. apps in. There's a reason that there's not free internet access there. But because they understand the power of rhetoric and the power of narrative. What I want to say, though, is I think people don't necessarily understand or they don't care about, like, the value of having a foreign-owned entity owning so much of their attention because it's entertaining and addicting, right? And yes, and in, in, so I've got a son who is a freshman in high school. And when the Ukraine war started, one day, and he likes to follow the news. He reads the news a little bit each day. And he came to me one time and he was like, hey, and I can't remember what the news bit was, but it was something that was obviously not true. I said, hey, dad, I think I just read this thing or I saw this thing. And I said, where'd you learn that? And he was like, I saw it on my friend's TikTok. And it was like, oh, okay, we need to have a conversation about how we consume the news. Yeah. And and I think so many people do get their news. I don't think they're seeking their news from TikTok, but But you're on it. They get it. You get it passively. And whether it's on TikTok or Instagram Reels or or Facebook or whatever it is, I, I think it's very easy to manipulate people's opinion. We all know that this, I'm not, this isn't breaking news. That was the first time where I was like, oh, wait a second here. My son wants to be educated on what's going on yeah. and has passively consumed misinformation and really starting to sit him down and say, okay, let's start talking about how we can, when you want to get information and news, we need to start to talk about how you do that. When I was his age, you didn't have to think that hard about where you got your news. There were three three channels that the news was on every night, and there were a, a handful of national papers that, that you read. I look forward to more conversations with you about this at future interview. It is a, a huge honor to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I look forward to your next film also. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this. Thanks, Joe.